Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. It's so hard when you see the scale of the world to understand that a single species has broken this planet. But we have, and it's shocking. And I think the Antarctic is that place where we don't see the damage because so few people go there. But if things go south there, we're in deep, deep trouble. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, welcome back, Solar Warrior. Thank you so much for lending me your ears and the only non-renewable resource we've got, and that is our time. I promise to take good care of it. If you're new to Suncast, I know you're going to get a ton, especially a ton of value out of this episode. So I'm grateful for the opportunity to earn your attention. While my friend Deb Nucky's resume says plenty about her more than 20 years of strategy and marketing experience and renewables, I think she would say that she's more defined by her career breaks to learn mountaineering, do polar expedition training, study photography, and complete a graduate program in documentary filmmaking with the hope of retracing her father's expedition through the Antarctic. She's a climate futurist, and she has a deep personal quest for addressing the climate crisis, informed by her time and experience with Antarctica features prominently in the subconscious of her activity. And I have heard her refer to Antarctica as the subconscious of the world. So perhaps today we're going to talk a lot about the things operating subconsciously in our collective mind. She's fresh back off of her most recent expedition to Antarctica. And today we're going to delve into this subconscious mind and more with my dear friend, Ebnaki. If you like what you hear on today's show, I hope that you'll subscribe so that's how you're going to get a whole lot more out of our twice weekly content just like this. Of course, you can always go to mysuncast.com where we have the back catalog of more than 450 founder stories and startup advice. For now, get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune into another powerful conversation here on Suncast. Many of you have become familiar with today's guest through her various marketing roles in clean energy. She began her career at Macquarie Bank, then was a financial and energy journalist in Australia before moving to the United States and uh, joining McKinsey's energy practice. She has a deep understanding of how the energy industry has evolved. If you have listened to one of our recent episodes about zinc batteries, she has a deep understanding through on and off the ice, as we'll say, about how the, about how the startup culture works. Her husband, Michael Burrs, of course, was the guest in that episode. And she has such an interesting, interesting life. She's helped clients in all aspects of renewables from solar and wind to energy storage, energy data, project finance. And she's also authored two books. There are so many things I could say about Deborah Nucky, but the one that stands out is she's one of the most interesting people I've ever met. I'm happy to have you finally on Suncast. Welcome, Deb. Thank you, Nico. I've been avoiding this for a long time, as you know. <laughs> Truth. Truth. Our first pre-interview was circa 2018, maybe 2019. For those uninitiated, the pre-interview 
is what happens to maybe set the stage. It's sometimes a dance for me to see if it's a good fit. Uh, and it's usually just a, a logistical step before the interview that happens several weeks later or years in your case. <laughs> I mentioned Michael. So I think I want to start with this. Why did you put a picture of you pulling a sledge as your profile picture on match.com? <laughs> uh, yes, I guess Michael fed you that one. Um, I found that while what I was doing day in, day out may have sounded kind of like a, a, a regular career and things, it was this other passion on the side that felt like it was really driving me. And it's a good way of shaking out people. And at the time I was on Match.com, I was I was doing a range of different things, but I'd just come back from uh, training in polar expedition training. And some people think that's really cool. And Michael was one of them. And uh, yes, I camped at minus 50 degrees, which is below where Fahrenheit and Celsius cross on the ice in Baffin, outside Baffin Island, outside Iqaluit. And I'd done training with the Royal Geographic Society to try and understand and learn how to do a, a full on ice expedition. It was at a time where I was gaining all the skills because I wanted to go to the Antarctic to retrace my father's steps. Now, I never got to do that that. It's very, very difficult to get um, permission from the Australian government to go on the ice. You need a group of three people. I had sponsors. I had all sorts of things lined up, but never got selected. They just didn't have space on their ships for a, a team of three. And frankly, after camping in minus 50 degrees, I like to say that I tried, but I'm yeah. sure the reality might have been pretty brutal. That is fascinating. The record will show that the Match.com profile pick landed you a pretty good score, or perhaps for him, uh, <laughs> it's great that you did that because he's the better for it, for sure. Both ways. How early in your life do you remember Antarctica being a relevant narrative or piece of your existence? I don't remember it not being. There were things around the house, the peanut bowl that had a penguin on it that my father purchased for a woman that I think of as the Tokyo Rose of the 1950s Antarctic. She did a weekly radio show that was picked up by the Australian Antarctic bases. My father purchased a nice gift for her and got back to the mainland and gave it to my mother instead. He'd met her once before he went down for 13, 14 months in the Antarctic. And uh, on his way home, he telegrammed his brother and said, that woman, Donna, that I met before I left, if she's still single, bring her to my, bring her to my welcome back party. That's and great. they were engaged six weeks later. So oh my gosh. I don't remember my father, but I do remember the Antarctic just being kind of a fundamental piece of what I didn't know about him. You lost your father to cancer at four years old. Yeah. Um, the reason that you know so much about him, which I think also tells us a lot about your perhaps affinity for writing is because he also had an affinity for writing. Can you tell me a bit about what he left behind that informs you and your family's understanding and many, many others, not just of who he was and the life he lived, but the work that he represented? Yeah. So he left quite an archive. Um, some of it was the day-to-day -day diaries and I just finished. I kind of put off ever 
really diving into them, but I just finished transcribing 76,000 words, his entire, his entire journal down there, which gave me so much of a bit better sense of him, but also that everything they were doing down there. But there's also kind of copious reports. He, he proactively went and wrote reports on what was wrong with all the winter gear and you know, which pieces worked and which pieces didn't and how to train dogs and why they needed better um, accommodations for the dogs and kind of all sorts of other pieces as well as kind of the day-to-day logs of where they were and what what he was mapping and so forth. So it's quite a slew of stuff along with telegrams and letters and newspaper clippings, you know, back in the, this was the International Geophysical Year, 1958. And so the Antarctic was kind of up there with space in terms of kind of places that there was cool stuff going on that people were really investigating. And part of my whole research for this uh, trip I recently did was digging into the political story at the time, which was the Antarctic Treaty and the formation of the Antarctic Treaty. And it was fascinating because here's a time post-World War II, various people had kind of tried to claim various parts of the Antarctic. In fact, during Hitler's time, there was a German plane that flew over the Antarctic and dropped stakes with swastikas on it to try and claim land. No, No kidding. The Americans had gone down and done something called Operation High Jump, where they photographed a solid one-third of the continent. Russia had a base down there. Uh, the English, uh, the the UK, Argentinian and Chileans were all kind of trying to put their stamp, their flag on the same piece. So it was a, it was a land grab or a political problem in the making. This is before, before all the superpowers were willing to kind of step back from it. So the International Geophysical Year and the year following it, kind of everyone put all their territorial claims on hold and said, this is a year about science. This is a year about exploring the earth, getting to know the earth. And by doing that, they gave politics enough of a rest that the countries that were down there doing science at the time could all sit down in one room and come up with a treaty to basically put this entire continent. I mean, this is one and a half times the size of the US. You could fit Australia in there twice. It's a massive, massive place. And to put it on hold. And it wasn't considered valuable in terms of resources. People weren't interested in whatever oil and gas and minerals and things were down there because it was seen as kind of too far away, too difficult. No one knew how that would be mined. There was value in the seas around it in terms of fishing, in terms of um, sealing was still happening at the time. There was still some whaling going on. So there were definitely, it wasn't seen as completely redundant, but it was more about its political value because of its sheer size. And so my father's expedition was part of the Australian Antarctic's program and what the most exciting part of his trip was a two-month, 400-mile dog sled trip with two teams of dogs and my father, a geologist and a radio operator. And that was to map. So it was taking the American Operation High Jump photos 
and working out where those mountains exactly were and sticking Australian names on it, which is why my father has a mountain in Australia, in, in Antarctica. Every Australian down there that year got something named after them with the assumption, I assume, that if a treaty wasn't signed, Australia could claim a larger stake because it had its name on lots of things. That is so fascinating. What's the mountain? Nucky Peaks. Nucky which Peaks. caused a lot of tittering in, in uh, elementary school. But uh, <laughs> yeah, so it's, uh, it's in Enderby land. It's a small mountain. We have a photo of it. It's all rock and ice out there. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, it's part of where he traveled and he mapped. And the three of them were the first people to ever walk those lands, to ever physically be on that land. And in the 1970s, there was another group that went out in a similar area, but they're the only two times human feet have been on the ground in that area. What other kinds of feet have been on the ground there? Uh, the dogs, which um, no, there are no longer dogs in the Antarctic. And there's probably 400 miles with... Uh, with evidence of where the dogs ate and pooped because that's why dogs are no longer allowed there. Honestly, the occasional bird, there's it's too far for penguins, too far for seals. So it really is an untouched part of the planet. What do you feel like most people get wrong about Antarctica? I think the scale. I mean, it, it's, it's really hard to wrap your head around. First of all, I don't think most people think about it unless there's some sensationalist headline like the Doomsday Glacier, which is not how the scientists like to refer to it, but it makes a great headline. There is ice in Antarctica that is 14,000 feet deep, 14,000 feet deep ice. I mean, it's just a scale that is really hard to wrap your mind around. And the expedition that I did, the the Leadership on the Edge program with Robert Swan, we just went to the areas that a lot of the tourist industry goes to on, on the Antarctic Peninsula. But when you look at that in relation to the entire continent, you're barely scratching the surface. And even mapping out the 400 miles my dad did, it's just a little sliver of the continent. So... I mean, it's it's just, it's massive and it's otherworldly. It's also a desert. It gets probably around six inches of rain a year. Mm. So while it has 70% of the world's ice, a huge amount of the world's freshwater reserves are in that ice, it really doesn't have a lot of replenishment of that. It's not like it right. snows 10 feet every winter. It's very different than that. I have a lot of questions I want to ask um, that it's hard to know where to go, but I would love to, because we're on the topic of the leadership on the edge, I'd love to know how you became a part of or identified that that was the thing that you wanted to do. And it's something that took you away from work. It's something that took your mm-hmm. headspace as your husband's trying to launch or sort of scale <laughs> a, a decades long startup. It's why this program. And I'd love to hear some of the things that you learned from that trip. Sure. Well, there's probably always a Google tab open where I'm searching Antarctic something. Somewhere along the line, I in a search, I just stumbled across this, this program. So Robert Swan's the first guy to walk to the North Pole and the South Pole. And he put together this 2041 foundation, which is focused on when the Antarctic Treaty next comes up for renegotiation in terms of mineral rights and mineral wealth. 
And I, I, I probably came across this while I was Googling where is the world's lithium and copper and iron and zinc and all these minerals coming from? And is the Antarctic at risk because it's a massive amount of mineral wealth? The answer is actually probably not. And when it comes to oil and gas, we're going to peak and we've got plenty of reserves elsewhere in the world that I don't think that will ever be exploited. But the fact that when I didn't get to do the actual on the ground, retrace my dad's steps, 60 days of, you know, blisters and ping in a bottle and all those things that that true expeditions involve. I kind of, I just put it to one side. Life went on. I, I did other things. But the thought of going on just kind of a tourist trip to the Antarctic didn't ever sit well with me because it felt like that wasn't true to what I wanted to do. And so the fact that this program, even though it kind of covered the same physical areas that the tourists covered, it was approaching it in a completely different way because the whole focus was on climate leadership. The vast majority of people going are actively involved in climate, uh, climate leaders ranging from 13 years of age, from 35 plus countries, um, 170 of us, we had the entire ship and it was the lowest carbon ship that is down there. And the whole focus was on that intersection of leadership, storytelling, climate change, and really kind of creating ambassadors for the Antarctic. So it checked a lot of boxes. And I also frankly realized that if I didn't get around to cracking those journals and really reading and understanding deeply what my father did there and what drove him and really who he was, they're just, you know, I, I just didn't want to kind of put that to one side further. Yeah. Any famous people on the trip? Uh, if you're an Arctic fan, yeah. Um, and, uh, Robert Swan. you know. Was Robert Swan there? Ro- oh, yeah. Yeah. Robert Swan and his son, Barney, who is running a foundation called Climate Force. So it was the those two foundations coming together. Climate Force is doing a lot of restoration of rainforests in Australia, for example. There were a lot of people leading various nonprofits. There was like the head of sustainability from HP. There were there were there were a bunch of people who are also climate communicators. So the the two guys who did the film that David Attenborough introduced at COP twenty six, they were down there to do a, a, a story about the Antarctic for COP twenty eight, I think. So so yeah, it was a really fascinating mix of folks and a lot of really deep understanding of how to tackle the climate crisis from all these different perspectives, from big corporate perspectives to grassroots groups. It was, it was really exciting to go there with that, that broad of a group. How many days? So the whole program was uh, just a couple of weeks and we started out in Ushuaia uh, because of COVID. We had to do a deep bubble pro- protocol. I, my my nose has been swabbed more in the last three weeks than it has in my entire life. Uh, we had daily, daily tests to ensure that no one got on the ship with COVID. And on the ship, we, we were tested daily as well until it was clear that there were no cases. Um, so we spent a couple of days in Ushuaia. I did not expect to love Ushuaia. I just 
thought of it as a port, but it is stunning. I mean, it's just amazing mountains, glaciers, uh, a peat bog. Who would know that peat bogs are incredibly idyllic, gorgeous places? So, you know, it, it was an amazing place to kind of meet everyone and start the program and really start. I mean, it was nonstop. There were, when we weren't out physically, you know, on the ground hiking or whatever, we were were in lectures and it was just a really good, well-run, deep program. So it's kind of like a two-week conference. Yeah, but not a sitting back and kind of listening to experts conference. It was more like a kind of hands-on learning and discovery and a lot of the value also was just kind of in who you sat down with and what they're doing. You know, it might be someone who worked in the Indian um, Park Service. It might be uh, someone, an Indigenous Canadian who is working on an art project to raise awareness of Indigenous issues. I, I mean, that was a really, it, it felt different than anything I'd done before. Apart from the examples you just raised, any particular discussions that left an impression on you? I think the, there was a woman, young woman, straight out of college, starting a nonprofit in Brazil, who was talking about issues on such a fundamental level. She was extremely emotional. One of the speakers had talked about, you know, the potential devastation of X, Y, and Z. And she just like stuck her hand up and said, it's not potential. I'm seeing it daily. So she, she was, um, a lot of us did short um, talks towards the end. And she gave a a 15-minute talk on the work that she's doing, taking young women, training them to plant mangroves and trying to get ahead of the devastation that they know is coming in the coastal communities of Brazil. But the risk of Brazil, the Amazon becoming a desert, again, it's hard to wrap your head around because it just seems so huge. And, And you picture things being chipped away, but it's just such a real fear for the people in the area. Mm, right. Nobody that we know or that we will birth will see the Amazon as a desert. And yet we have an obligation to try and do something about the reality that it's headed that way. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. We were generations away from it. What an inspiration to be able to sit with someone that consciously aware mm. at a young age of our responsibility to future generations. As you were going into this experience, what was on your mind as someone who has spent years in journalism and trade? And do you understand the economic impact of the con- of the conscious decisions that are being made? And how, as you said, Antarctica is the subconscious, which I want to get into as, as well in a minute. But what was on your mind considering how you wanted to capture the experience and tell the story of it on this side of the journey? Yeah, so, so some of it was really about the personal exploration. I think when you lose a parent so young that you don't remember them, you kind of create your own mythology around them. And so a lot of it was about that exploration and the places I hadn't wanted to go to there. You know, I I grew up, I was super independent growing up. I, I was absolutely sure, and probably the reason I didn't meet Michael till you know, well into my years, is that I was absolutely sure I didn't need anyone. You know, I backpacked around 50 countries. I, I made my own money. I started working at the the minute I was legally old enough. I was kind of um, aggressively independent, uh, emotionally very kind of detached and 
whatever. And I created this mythology that had my dad lived, I would have grown up in a little country town with a religious dad and I wouldn't be who I am. And that narrative got flipped in so many ways when I was over the years that I've kind of started really looking at his story and who he was and really what I lost. And so so a lot of my questioning was around that deeper kind of emotional journey of of who am I in relation to this person? And then at the same stage, I was looking at what were they doing there at the time and how did that fit into this bigger climate picture? Because you know, they, they were measuring the depth of the ice cap, they were putting in weather stations, they were measuring how the glaciers were moving. So a lot of the baseline of climate data today started in those 1950s. Uh, the Mawson, the base he was at, was the first scientific base that was a permanent established base, the, f- the first base that had people overwintering. My dad was the third or fourth year that they had people overwintering. So a lot of what they did there was really kind of setting the baseline at a time when they couldn't have imagined how we think about the questions of how glaciers are moving, how thick the ice cap is, and so forth today. Because today we're seeing it through a completely different lens. And from a global perspective, I'm, it's, it's, it's so hard when you see the scale of the world to understand that a single species has broken this planet. But we have. And it's, it's shocking. And I think the Antarctic is that place where we don't see the damage because so few people go there. And most of the people going there are tourists in their later years trying to check off continent number seven. There's fewer than a thousand scientists overwintering there every year. There's there's about 10,000 scientists plus um, staff at the scientific bases. So it's kind of this place no one looks at. But if things go south there, we're in, we're in deep, deep trouble. I mean, the, the potential for sea level rise, most of that comes not from melting in the north, not from Greenland's ice sheet. It comes from the Antarctic. And so just, you know, the, the potential to see the true impact of the dirty energy industry. Oh, that was the other thing. Sorry. We visited a whaling station and it was mind-blowing to see these massive oil tanks, the sort that you see when you drive past a refinery in, you know, Richmond, California, to see on a beach piles of these rusted, massive oil tanks and to know that those were filled with oil rendered from dead whales. We murdered so many whales, we powered the earth. And to think about that today, it seems outrageous and primitive and horrendous. And yet here we are damaging the world with oil and gas in a way that's not killing one species. It's potentially damaging the entire planet irreversibly. So it was just, it's, it was an amazing kind of juxtaposition. You know, at what stage will humans look at the oil and gas infrastructure with the same horror that we looked at the whaling infrastructure. Where, where were those tanks? Uh, it's a place called Deception Island, um, Whalers Bay. 
and it actually operated in Antarctica. In in Antarctica, yeah. No way. Yeah, or South Shetland Islands. So it's right where the um, Antarctic Peninsula and South Shetlands meet. I've mentioned a couple of times. I'd like to get your thoughts on or explanation of a phrase that you've used that I would like to understand better. Tell me why Antarctica is the subconscious of the world. Yeah, I I think it struck me as that because it is so unexplored. Even now with all of the science going down there, there's so much we don't know. I, I sat in on a, there's a group, global group called SCAR, that's the scientific Committee on Antarctic Resources that oversees all the science of the whole continent. And they had a speaker that was talking about the fact that we have not even looked at and mapped how the ice and the land are meeting the sea on most of the Antarctic continent. So we know what's happening at the front of Thwaites Glacier, but it's such a massive place. We don't have active monitoring. We don't know kind of a lot of those kind of interstitial places where the Antarctic meets meets the the ocean. And so just this sense of it's massive, it's unexplored, and it's where we will see invisible damage that will drive a lot of things, which struck me as it's not the subcontinent, it's the it's the subconscious. It's this place that reflects a lot of the planet's deep damage in a way that um if it's not addressed, will be devastating. A little less uh, morbid, perhaps. What life skills do you feel you integrated, psychologically or otherwise, from the original training that you did back when you were thinking uh, of going and you're going to attempt to go and trace your father's steps? I've always been relatively fearless about jumping away from a perfectly good job to go explore something else if it didn't feel like it it fit. I think my dad died so young and I had a little precancerous growth when I was 20 that made me always kind of think of life as relatively limited. So I didn't ever think, oh, I'm going to do all this awesome stuff when I'm older. It was like, you know, go go and squeeze the juice out of life now because you don't know how long you've got it. But I hadn't really met my limits before, but I fell down a crevasse on Mount Baker when I was doing the Knowles mountaineering course. And as was my usual thing, I self-rescued and was helped by the the folks on the rope and, you know, got out. But it wasn't until later that afternoon that it struck me that I could have been really hurt, but more that I was outside. I'd I'd met the edge of my abilities. I am not going to be an ice climber. I am not going to, you know, it's like, and I never saw myself as massively athletic, but I, I don't think I'd ever hit places of failure before. And even though, you know, there were certainly places on, on my resume and my life journey and whatever that others might see as failure, I'd always kind of got up and brushed things off. But just really kind of getting that sense of, okay, there are things I'm not going to be. I'm not going to be an opera singer. I'm not going to be a mountaineer <laughs> in an extreme sense. I think that was interesting because it's helped me kind of understand and better respect that what we each bring to the rope when we tie in to this thing called life is is valuable in its own way, even if it looks completely different from one person to the next. I don't think I'd appreciated the value of others as much. Mm, that's really cool. The thing we bring 
when we tie in to this thing called life. That's a really beautiful imagery. Mm. Quite the gifted writer. You should consider it. <laughs> Speaking of writing, uh, a thought occurred to me when you were talking about your father and how you've really had this learned um, or this felt lived experience of getting to know him through his writing. And while that I don't think factors very much into many children's lives these days because folks just don't journal the way they used to. There are, uh, there are folks, I can count myself in them that certainly while I was in the Peace Corps and even now uh, as an adult, I try to journal. I try to journal more. I try to not just have it be something that is me clearing my mind, but rather me intentionally trying to say something that is a reflection of how I'm thinking and, and who I am. Mm-hmm. So with the reflection of 76,000 words and um, the many hours you've no doubt spent with your father in his writing, as a father, what could I do better in my own journaling and in my own reflection, perhaps, to leave a story for my children, grandchildren, I'm specifically probing what that, that, that moment where you might have said to your dad, well, why didn't you write about this? Or why the hell did you write it that way? Uh, I mean, I'm really thinking tactically, like how yeah. have you learned the art of journaling through this process? Well, it, it's interesting because dad's journals aren't introspective. A lot of it is a record of the day, you know. We drove here. We had this for lunch. We, we, which was illustrative in itself because it gave you a sense of what everyday life was like in the Antarctic. And so, a lot of what I took away from it about him is kind of peripheral to what he actually said. You know, he was a polymath. He was r- repairing trucks and airplanes and and um, teaching you know, cooking meals and they, they didn't have cooks. And I, I mean, everyone was hands-on with everything. So he kind of approached everything with a lot of joy, including kitchen duty and trash duty. He also did some really hard things and I'll be happy to touch on that later. But I think I think it's not about sharing. I mean, we all live this kind of Instagram, here's the highlights of the awesome stuff I've done kind of life these days. But the most that I learned about him was from the really hard things and the everyday things. It wasn't from deep thinking or philosophical writing. It was from, um, this is the story that totally broke me up. Um, There's one entry, March 11th, where he says, I did the thing that no one wanted to do. So in the Antarctic, they used dogs. Dogs were a tool. There were dogs that the Russians gave them when they visited Mirny on the way down. There were dogs that had been born on the ship, puppies that they'd raised. There were the dogs that were already down there from previous years and from different stations. And they they trained the dogs for this 400-mile sled trip. It was the, the longest trip that they'd done And so there was a lot of the practical stuff of, you know, how do you make a sled work and yada, yada. But the thing that really got me is here's this 24-year-old, the youngest person there by a decent slice, someone who loved the dogs and raised the dogs. And when they got to the point of saying the, they called them superfluous dogs, had to be put down, he was the one who, who did that really hard thing. And it said so much to me about, I mean, I can't imagine doing that. You know, I can't imagine 
doing that. But the fact he stepped up and did this really hard thing taught me volumes about his honor, his integrity, his willingness to really um, put his own heart to one side for what was at then that stage seen as a necessary, a greater good. Um, so that was that was the hardest thing I read. I, I had no idea. I don't think anyone in our family knew he had had to shoot dogs. I can imagine how heart-wrenching that was for him. And yet, to your point, um, it was collectively seen in the group as necessary for the greater good and how many of those kinds of decisions we as a society face right now. The example you brought up of, uh, of transitioning away from fossil fuels, of finding a way to replant the many mangroves, not just in Brazil, but elsewhere, that past, past generations have, um, have, have destroyed, thinking, as you said about Antarctica, it's too big to destroy. Yeah. I had a conversation with my, all, the, all of my conversations with my WASP family, uh, my predominantly uh, Christian family from the Southeast tend to end in this throwing their hands up. Well, I believe that God won't let us destroy the earth kind of conversation. And I ask myself, how do we combat that? <laughs> how on earth do we combat an entire generation, an entire sect of our society that believes there's nothing we can do because God is all powerful? Yet they also believe that we are imbued with God's power and that we've been given the power to create and destroy. Uh, it's, yeah, it's baffling. I- I think that there's that term dominion over that gets mm. interpreted in in different ways by different cultures. There's this sense, I think, in the Judeo-Christian heritage world that dominion over means we get to grow them, farm them, eat them, control them, take care of them. But if you look at a lot of indigenous ways of thinking, a lot of Buddhist ways of thinking and so forth, it's it's more stewardship. Dominion isn't about control. It's about how do how are we stewards for this world? And and if there's a God or gods or whatever, do you think they'd really want us destroying this amazing creation called our planet? Or to be testing our limits by trying our best to destroy it, even if some being stops it from the actual end. So yeah, I'm not, I'm not religious, but I do think that the ethical and moral imperative to protect the planet and protect all the creatures on the planet, you don't need a book to tell you that that's the right thing to do. It's a question of how do we define that and how do we live that and bring that into our business practices, our personal practices, and so forth. Yeah. Well, to your point, as a society, we tend to want to push the edges and the limits and find the limits of our capacity. We all have, and now as a society, we live on that crevasse that you returned from in your training that says, I'm not prepared for this. Am I ready to, am I, am I able to now step up and say, okay, the work that needs to be done for our generations as a humanity we've 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 got to incorporate and indoctrinate people into a different way of thinking and fast and that actually odd as it may uh be and certainly not at a place i expected is a great little segue into uh the work that you have been doing you know you and i laugh often because we both took a long time to really figure out what we like and where we're good at at work 
and I don't ever, I, I had, I don't claim yet to have grown up and, and stepped into sort of the job that I'm good, for, I'm good at or perfect for, but I would love to know about how you discovered the energy sector broadly and then sort of realized, and certainly it's been true for the last uh, decade or so, at least, um, that the clean energy sector is where you were going to put your, your force at play. So to a certain degree, it was situational. When you're a journalist in the business pages in Australia, a lot of Australia's raw materials and energy. So that was kind of natural there. And it was sort of happenstance at uh, McKinsey that the assignments I was assigned to deregulation of the electric utility industry in California, uh, oil and pipeline economics. That just happened to be the client base and the projects that were in the LA office at the time. And after leaving McKinsey, I didn't particularly focus on on energy. I, I did a number of other things as I tried to find. I love that Japanese term. I don't probably butchering its pronounce, pr- pronunciation. Ikigai, 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 ikigai. So that place where it's the intersection of what you love, what you're good at, what mm-hmm. you can get paid for, and what the world needs. And I think that evolved in terms of the what I love evolved. Yeah. But the what the world needs is the thing that dramatically changed. And there was a 2008, the lake that I grew up taking some sailing lessons on, Lake Boga in Victoria. It's a lake in a kind of wetlandish area, but it's big enough to have one or two little yacht clubs and little kind of dinky little sailboats that kids and adults race. It disappeared it dried up. There was 14 years of drought. It dried up? It dried wow. up. It completely went away. And and I mean, it was just really hard to wrap your mind around it. And then, of course, the fires in Australia were unbelievable, not just the recent ones, but earlier in the 2000s. And it just became this thing where suddenly this thing, climate change that I kind of heard of earlier in my mm-hmm. career you couldn't ignore it in Australia. You could still at that time kind of pretend nothing was happening over here. But there it was just, it was so obvious. And and I at the time was, you know, on the side buying and renovating a, a, um, a, a, a house, a couple of apartments in the Washington DC area and getting super interested in, in green building technologies. And I recognized there was nothing on my resume that said sustainability so mm. I went to an architecture school, did a Master's of Science in Sustainable Design with a focus on building energy systems because I just felt like, I felt like I woke up in the middle of a world war and suddenly realized I needed to completely pivot my life for this battle. Hey, I know you are a savvy listener. Heck, you're listening to Suncast and you've probably, as a result, heard of a little company called SunGrow. If you're not using SunGrow inverters on your projects, I would love to better understand why. They are the inverter of choice for many of the EPCs that I know. SunGrow is the number one in gigawatts deployed. They've got the top bankability in the industry. Hexsolve uses them for the majority of their projects. And you may not even know, but SunGrow has the largest R&D team in the power electronics industry. These three 
key points alone have convinced most of the major US developers to prefer SunGrow. They now experience a diversified supply chain, local service team, patented containerized product, all with their seamless, pain-free commissioning. Look, imitation is the highest form of flattery. So why spend all of your cycles on what inverter to use when the largest EPC in the land has already done the heavy lifting for you? You can have their same experience for your projects. See how at mysuncast.com forward slash sungrow. Hey, pardon the interruption, but I wanted to just let you know how much of an impact you have on Suncast. Yeah, you. Thank you for clicking play. Without you, this show is just me shouting into the void. But there's still people who don't even know about Suncast. I know. I can hardly believe it myself. (laughs) But that's where you can help me yet again. There's a simple way that you can show some love and help others discover the show. If you cruise over to www.ratethispodcast.com forward slash suncast. I'd love it if you would leave a five-star rating and enthusiastic review. That's possibly the single kindest thing that you could do for me today. So if the show has helped, inspired, or even entertained you at all, I'd love it if you would head over to ratethispodcast.com forward slash suncast and give me a virtual two thumbs up. All right, back to today's episode. So Deb, here you are, you're in DC, you have your now second master's in sustainable design. What took you from sustainable design to power conditioning devices from DC to Petaluma? So here I was kind of mid-career. I'd gone off and done my own thing for a while. I'd written a couple of books. I'd had my 15 minutes of fame writing personal finance books. I'd just done a whole range of things, but I here with a freshly minted second master's trying to get back in the workforce and a resume that, as Australians would say, looked like the dog's dinner. And so trying to find a way back into the workforce is difficult. A lot lot of people don't quite know how to deal with people who don't have a typical resume. But there are some people who kind of hire for attitude, character, skills, passion, whatever. And courtesy of Twitter, I very luckily stumbled across one of those with the CMO at the time of Enphase, where I'd actually been following his wife on Twitter. We'd had a few exchanges and she suddenly pinged me and said, my husband's looking for someone in marketing. And and here I was, I stepped back to pretty much earning what I earned when I graduated from my MBA a couple of decades earlier. I took away big titles and joined as a product marketing manager to just get back in and learn hands-on. And and over the, you know, the number of years at Enphase, I worked my way up to kind of head of global marketing. But I, I, I think in all of the pivots that my career has taken, which are way more pivots than a career should have taken, but it's never been boring. I think the one thing that I've felt is I learn, I love learning curves, which is why I was 
loved being a journalist because each day you're learning something new. But um, I love learning hands-on too. And product marketing was this awesome place to actually be down in the detail. There was one guy there in engineering and pretty much every lunchtime I'd sit there and say, okay, what's a DC arc fault versus an AC arc fault? What's reactive power? You know, getting down into that detail, I think was a really sound base for getting into renewables. But I'm kind of geeky person who likes to understand all of that. I happen to wear a marketing hat, but I'd be just as happy wearing various other hats because I'm fascinated by the technology. I'm fascinated by how it's financed. I find kind of all the intersections of different things. So it's not just renewables, but how does energy and water intersect? How does renewable energy and regenerative agriculture intersect? Could they intersect? Could they build on each other? So I find it's kind of the systems of systems that I find fascinating. And getting down and dirty in whatever you're doing, I think is a really great way of better understanding whether you're running marketing, running engineering, running um, the legal department. I think having that hands-on learning about an industry can be super valuable. That is really, really beautiful. And I'd say so often from my pulpit, as it were, that it really does take many times humbling yourself and saying, okay, I'm willing to actually go backwards or perceived to be backwards in my career to, to make a step change. As you enumerated here, the, the things that you learned and ultimately being able to take that step back and, and, and elevate yourself to head of global head of marketing at Enphase company everyone recognizes uh, in our sector, at least. So you joined Enphase at a time where our industry, in fact, was still looking at Enphase, not as like the de facto market leader for anything, right. but rather this, in, this uh, rabble rousing upstart that had not yet proven itself. Yeah. Had a lot of growing still to do. What were some of the early or maybe even more interesting challenges you recall from those days at Enphase? Well, I, I, I mean, this is in the days where home energy storage was just beginning to be grasped. And Enphase at the time was looking at creating its first product. We were expanding into Australia, which was a really interesting market. Turned out to be perfect for launching a battery that was good at time of use arbitrage because it was not something that would keep the lights on in a blackout, but it was, you know, it was what the technology was at the time. I think one of the more interesting things to me that I've seen as an arc that, as, as something that waxes and wanes in the industry is it was at a time when a few large installers were sweeping the market and taking up most of the oxygen in the room. And part of what we did was also empower all the small guys, all the all the um, long tail installers who are out there building the industry because there's room for both. And I think it it's a different challenge at both ends. I think we're seeing seeing that kind of wax and wane over time. At the moment, there's a lot of the regional and, and mid sized guys, and when I say guys, companies as a whole um, that are really kind of regaining ground. To me, the biggest story was beyond Resi, but in the renewables market as a whole. I remember my first SPI. It was, in essence, there were a lot of 
developers out there running around looking for money. By the last time, by you know, 2018, 2019, the script had been completely flipped. Now there's bankers with buckets of money wandering around trying to find a good project to develop. And I think that's been, for me, the most interesting thing is to see it really has been a coming-of-age story in the last five years where the industry as a whole is now all grown up. It's still nowhere near the size of oil and gas. It's still battling various um, battles, uh, still at risk of having various legislation and things um, limited. But as an industry, the whole concept of renewables is bankable in a way that it simply wasn't a decade ago. It's interesting because history will probably not tell the story of the struggling end phase, candidly, because it's doing so amazingly well right now. <laughs> and for all the reasons that many of us thought it would. Yeah, I sold it at uh, six. <clears throat> <laughs> Seriously. Sorry, I just erupted in um, laughter. Yeah, and, I, I um, actually... You know, but you... I, I actually left at a stage where Emphase was going through some layoffs. And um, at that stage, I put my hand up for, I was managing, of course, all the internal and external communications around the layoff. But I put my hand up and said, hey, add me to the list the last time that I, I did that because I recognized that what they needed in marketing was someone completely focused on field execution and so forth. And we had an amazing woman running um, the Americas and she kind of took it and run with, ran with it. And I knew that the company would be better without me and with her at the helm. I think, you know, when you look at your career, choosing when to hand on or accepting that, hey, this is awesome role, but I'm not the right person for it. It's, it's always hard because I think we kind of grow up in this culture of career FOMO. Like if I don't get the promotion, if I don't get the title, if I don't get the whatever, that that's going to kind of damage me forever. But I think if if you think of a career as more of a quilt, there are times where you just put it down and go work on a different part of it. Wow, that's really deep. That's great. Thank you for that. It strikes me as um, really still very true what I know about Enphase today and not just Enphase, actually a number of companies that have done exactly what you said. They've, in the face of large installers sweeping the market, taking all the oxygen out of the room, they've empowered the long tail. They've given very tangible tools, which a, an AC microinverter did, you know, for those who maybe aren't, don't understand the architecture. Enphase was really the first device in the market that allowed a non-electrician to install and commission the project, yeah. right? Um, you, had, you need an electrician to really just get sign-off at the jurisdiction. I mean, literally, installers were able to get the entire project done without an electrician on site because it was all coming off the roof in Romex. It was all AC. Yeah. And it was transformative. Uh, so much so that companies like Vivint were able famously to sell and install a system in the same day, mm -hmm. right? Because of the tools like like the ZEP racking and the in-phase inverter yep. that just gave installers leverage, no matter who, folks that are AC, uh, excuse me, uh, air conditioning installers, roofers, et cetera. Those are the kinds of technologies I think we still, they still get a little, they get overlooked. And I think there are a lot of them that are kind of coming to market. Oh yeah, now. I'm super excited about, you know, when it comes to residential architecture, the mm -hmm. whole 
electrify everything movement, um, the move towards mm. heat pumps that are so much more efficient and better for the planet than gas-fired uh, furnaces. Um, mm-hmm. I, I'm a total fanboy of SPAN, the oh, really smart panel, because that's yeah. going to enable this um, enable integration of EVs and batteries and, and so on and so forth without necessarily having to go around and heavy up every house. And I, I mean, I think as a whole, the the concept of a smart distributed network is something that Enphase got really right, that the industry as a whole is getting right, particularly in the states where power isn't as reliable. I mean, you would think you would think it would be more reliable, but between public safety power shutoffs or trees falling or whatever, we 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 have outages that that other countries don't necessarily uh, deal with as often. And so I think this this kind of move towards connected but islandable power systems is going to be really important. Tell me something that's true for you that very few people would agree with you on. Ultimately, and I'm not alone in this because I've heard Jigga Shah say it and he's, he's a white man of wisdom. Ultimately, we've won the race. He's the oracle, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, we've won the race. We just don't know when. So renewables are already the right answer. The question is, what's the time frame for that for that changeover? And I think that's true of a number of technologies. The other thing, which is probably completely unpopular, I don't think oil and gas will ever go away completely. There's nothing like the energy density of jet fuel. Nothing like it. And maybe hydrogen-powered jets will get there one day, but if we can shrink the oil and gas industry to supply the things that no other fuels can do in a an effective way, and we can capture carbon and we can stop methane leaks and so forth, um, I don't think oil and gas will ever or, or necessarily should ever go to zero. I'm going to say in 500 interviews, you're the first person to ever say that. That truly is both, I'd say, controversial within our circles and something I can get behind. <laughs> well, you, you know, it's like when we were growing up, we thought nuclear was the bad guy, you know, the spent fuel rods, yada, yada. Um, yet here we were killing the planet with something as simple as CO2. Um, but if we can ratchet back oil and gas and find ways to do carbon capture and storage or carbon capture and use, I mean, ether with their diamonds from carbon or whatever, I don't think it has to completely go away. doesn't mean I like the industry or would work in it again, but I do think we have to work with them where they offer products that nothing else can really compete with. Deb, I love where this conversation has gone and I'm sure we have a few more turns to take. I had a question that I asked a while ago and I kind of took it out because I just don't think many people have have taken the time to think about what they want to teach the world or talk to the world about. And so the question kind of draws on that and it can put uncomfortable moments, but I think that you have. And so I'll, I'll, I'll bring it back to the conversation. I hope one day that if you haven't already, you will very much uh, deliver one of these. But what would your TED talk be about? I have this concept in my head of retopia. Re? Retopia. Retopia? It's not utopia. Mm-hmm. We're not going to have this perfect world. We've broken it 
already. It's not dystopia, but we might pass through dystopia. But what I'm really curious about is kind of retopia. When we start rebuilding the world, what does that look like? What's and and I actually been playing around with it from a climate fiction perspective. Unless we can make a carbon-free, carbon-negative future exciting, attractive, and really compelling, it will be really hard to move people along. And so I'm curious about how do we paint a really compelling story where a net zero home is more comfortable an EV car is so much more fun to accelerate in. Clean food that's maybe grown in a fermenter rather than than grazing a field tastes just as good. Where where we can make a carbon-free society that is sustainable and fun and attractive and and great to live in. I think we have to be able to paint that picture in order to move people along. You were talking about people in kind of who who are resistant to the idea of of change, who don't think we've got a problem. Well, part of that's because they really believe that this future involves giving up a lot of the stuff they like, whether it's the a larger home or the food they eat or or whatever. So I think painting that restored, renewed, rebuilt world so people understand that it's actually a really attractive place. It may take us generations to get there, but and, and we'll go well over 1.5 degrees before we can start turning back, I believe. But yeah, that's, that's what I'd love to help paint. And I know that you're very well-read and traveled uh, more than 50 countries, I think. For someone with such a breadth of experience, where do you draw inspiration from? I think ultimately nature, A, because it's beautiful. I love mountains. I mean, that there's something soul-filling about seeing big, rugged mountains. Um, but more because it's this really sophisticated system. There's no such concept of waste. Everything that's an output of something is an input of something else. And that, to me, is where we've got to get this system's thinking for the entire human ecosystem. And it doesn't need to be in a bubble. The human ecosystem can interact with all these other ecosystems, the, the um, microbiome of the soil, the, the plants, animals, and whatever. But that, that concept that, you know, the, the leaves lot rotting on the ground, that's not waste, that's food. And so how do we, how do we take that? It's not just biomimicry. But how do we take that um, full ecosystem mindset to create a future? So one of the things that we didn't touch on is that you have spent a lot of time in in marketing through marketing agencies. Kite Rocket uh, has taken up a lot of your time. But the coolest thing about working in marketing at an agency, in my view, uh, and I know some about it because as a sort of pseudo journalist at a podcast, I get insight into things that other people don't. It's just that you get to see things that other people don't like. You get to see tech before it comes to market. You get to talk with people who are doing things that may may never see the light of day. With that in mind, what's the coolest climate tech that you've seen lately hmm. that you can talk about? Oh, that I can talk about. <laughs> um, actually, it's 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 probably not a client, but it's uh, it's a direction that I find really interesting. I'm I'm super interested in 
cultured meats and the whole potential to have meat without slaughter. So there's in, in the Bay Area, there's upside foods that's really interesting. There's change food. There's There's a bunch of companies. They're not making meat analogs using plants. They're growing cells in a lab. And I think if that can scale, that's yeah, 18% of global emissions. That's a lot of deforestation that can stop. This is So this is not beyond meat, which, as you said, is replicating the idea of meat with plant food. They're rather col- growing cultures in a lab instead of growing animals in a field. Correct. Yeah. And the beauty of that, as I've been talking about this with friends as well, uh, vegan and otherwise, is you get the best parts of the sort of that, that culture and enjoyment of meat, which I, uh, I enjoy. I'm not a vegan, uh, although I sort of tend towards pescatarianism. Uh, you get the joy of actually having the best cuts, the choice cut, the one that everybody wants without having to grow 10x more cows to get it. Yeah. The culture of humans getting everything they want and increasingly at the moment that they want it has, is destroying our planet. That is, in fact, the, that consumerism is, is the heart of the climate crisis. Yeah. That's really cool. I didn't. I hadn't heard of upside foods and change foods. I'm going to have to look in those. We're running out of time, but I do want to make sure I pay, pick your brain a bit on uh, books. So as you know, because I know that you're an avid listener that, and you know the question's coming, I want to know from your perspective, what are the books that, maybe books that folks should read? Uh, and I don't, we don't want to should on anyone, but folk, books that you have seen impact others, maybe client skeptics, maybe the also the books that have led to your own transformation or mm. uh, improvement as a leader, as a thinker, et cetera? So I think of all the books I've read recently, Colin Jeromack's Up to Heaven and Down to Hell, which is about fracking, struck me as kind of the most interesting because it's telling very human stories. I think there's a lot of great books on technology. I've recently dug through Saul Griffith's Electrify and, you know, various other things. I think the ability to understand the motivations and the issues faced by people right at the right at the front edge of the energy industry, whether it's a farmer whose land is being fracked or a worker whose job may go away, I think that's going to be very crucial in how the next few decades play out. I know that you and Michael have developed some wonderful habits together that I hope to emulate in terms of just spending time together as a couple. But what what about your daily routine informs how you kind of go about life? Is there anything that you have habitualized that gives you leverage? No, there's there's the me that I think I should be that I <laughs> and and that me is is very uh, good. She she meditates and does um, yoga and um, goes for a long walk every day. The actual me is pretty sporadic in all sorts of things. So I don't think there's any specific thing that I do on a regular basis. Um, beyond look out the kitchen window, we've got a lovely view across a valley and. There's something about just looking out and seeing the sky and seeing the trees and just ha- having that ability to stand back and stop for a second and just look broadly. I really appreciate. And we have red tail, red tails and red shouldered hawks around here. And I'm, I'm like that dogging up anytime, like a squirrel, anytime I see a bird, I'll be, 
drives drives Michael mad, I'm sure. I'll be in the middle of a sentence and just stop because there's something about the beauty of gliding, soaring birds that that um, is like a micro meditation for me. Have you read My Side of the Mountain? No, I haven't. Okay, so it's written in the in this in the sense of a children's book. It's written in the 30s or the 50s, one of those two. I have to say it is an absolutely fascinating read and the prose is beautiful. Some of the ways that this author wrote this book, uh, I mean, captivating. I found myself as a, as a, as a writer and a creator, just like dog-gearing pages as I'm reading it to my children. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Lovely. I'll, right. I'll Which is, it was introduced it. to us because it was recommended for our children. And I definitely recommend, cause I know a lot of folks listening are, uh, our fam- our parents, my side of the mountain and, uh, on the other side of the mountain and, uh, there's a third one in the series. They're all worth it. It's so good. But my side of the mountain is just captivating. I won't, I won't ruin it any more than that, except to say that if you ever find yourself stranded on a mountain and um, believing that you can't make it out, which I know is a s- situation you've been in, you will be emboldened by the hands-on knowledge you get from this book and the courage uh, that it took for the protagonist in the book to choose the journey he was on. And I don't know that it was a true story, but I sure wish it was. And I sure would love to meet this guy <laughs> in real life. <laughs> All right. Well, Deb, let's end today as I always do with a bold prediction, one I hope you've prepared for. You've given many profound statements and thoughtful insights about the world around us. But what one thing do you see happening or that you are tracking right now that perhaps is on the fringe and still on the edge? What's in your crystal ball? Ultimately, I think. As much as there are climate activists who want to undo capitalism, this is all about money. It's about how we finance and build this clean energy infrastructure. It's about freeing up money that has been going into doing the wrong things and move them towards doing the right things. And frankly, I think we have to redefine GDP because If rebuilding a city damaged by a hurricane is considered good for the economy, we will never be doing the right things for our future. So it's finance and before finance, it's pricing risk. So it's pricing the growth, but first it's pricing the risk. So I think the underwriters and and the um, reinsurance companies of the world will actually dictate what our future looks like well before politicians get their act into asses into gear. Well, Deb Nucky, among the many uh, accolades in your career, uh, we can now chalk up uh, Suncast guest on the list. You've made it through the gauntlet. You, uh, you are an inspiring climate writer and futurist uh, and marketer, someone that I've looked to for Uh, inspiration and advice and i know that many many others have as well i look forward to reconnecting very soon and i'm sure that others are going to want to do the same so we'll link to your linkedin which i know you're active on and uh, look forward to having you back on suncast very soon thanks nico well solaria i hope that you leave this conversation as inspired as i am and motivated to really grab life by the horns as it were As you can see, my friend Deb has always taken the road less traveled. How are you challenging yourself today? What's the crevasse in your life, perhaps, where you've challenged yourself right to the point of danger and you need to step back and reevaluate if you should keep going? 
forward. In any case, I do encourage you, challenge yourself, seek meaning. Thank you, Deb Nucky, for leaning in, for being vulnerable, for sharing from the wealth of information that you have gleaned through the adventurous life that you've led and that of your father. Thank you for inspiring us all to do work that means more than just feeding our families, more than just feeding our ego. And I hope that that's why you're here. I hope that you're eager to keep learning because then you, my fellow Philomath, should head over to the resources section and mysuncast.com. You'll find highlights from this and every other discussion, along with Deborah's social media links, the book recommendations that we both left here for you, and more commentary on Deb's journey over on the blog. Click on this episodes tab and you'll be taken to that part of the portal. Since you're already going to be online, I'd love if you'd share this episode with someone else on LinkedIn or Twitter, wherever it is that you express yourself and your influence. It's such a treat when I get to hear from you. I know that Deb as well would appreciate to learn how her story in this episode resonated with you. Who do you think needs to hear this story today? Tune in again next week as we bring you another tactical, practical episode on Tuesday and a deep dive, long form executive profile on Thursday of the leaders that are shaping the economy that we call the clean economy. Thanks once again, finally, to our sponsors who help make this content free to you each and every week. You can learn more about them at mysuncast.com forward slash sponsor. And that's also how you could learn ways that you could partner with us to reach thousands of solar warriors and clean tech champions twice a week. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle.